Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Georgia. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by... Giselle Donnelly, Senior Fellow with the American Enterprise Institute, and... Dalit Burohaj, also a Senior Fellow at AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Um, today, we're joined by Anders Oslund, who is um, currently a senior fellow with the Stockholm Free World Forum. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Anders, I don't know where to start um, because I have like a list of questions just based on your most recent publications and it's hard to keep up with them. But there's one thing that you noted in one of your most recent articles that I have been really interested in and I'm curious obviously what you think but I'm also curious why we are not talking about it so much as I would expect um, we we would do at this point. You note that Putin is not talking anymore about a war against Ukraine or a special military operation, but rather that he is fighting the what he calls collective West. And we also know that when Putin and um, the Kremlin generally talk about the West, they mean the United States. We have been trying to make sense of the Western alliance, and I guess we'll go into the weeds with you later on in this conversation when we're looking at Europe particularly. But whatever he means Putin by collective West, it should be a note to all of us, whether here in Washington or in other or in European capitals. So why is it you think that this narrative is changing on the Russian side um, and is becoming more aggressive now? And then on the other side, why is it that a lot of Western leaders are reluctant to to acknowledge this, um, that it has been in the end uh, a Russian aggression against the West directly and indirectly, whether we're looking at political interference or cyber or all these other things? Yeah, this is actually quite an important question. This collective West, as far as I'm aware, has arisen really during the last two years. The person who I think first coined it or at least emphasized it was uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the former president of of, uh, Belarus. And I think the reason was that he was uh, sanctioned heavily by both Europe and uh, the United States. And then it becomes complicated when the UK is uh, independent from those two bodies and Canada is also relevant. So then the collective West becomes natural. With regard to Russia, you can say that Putin until 2013 considered the European Union a bloodless uh, paper tiger. Only then he got some respect for uh, the European Union when uh, Ukraine, uh, Georgia, Armenia and Moldova were about to uh, conclude association agreements with the European Union, which caused Van Putin's massive uh, protest that uh, resulted in um, Jevra uh, Maidan on the Ukrainian side and then in Russia, uh, Russia's attack on uh, Ukraine in 2000. Uh, 14. Before that, Putin saw the US and NATO as the enemy. And in the, the Russian strategic uh, thinking, the US and uh, NATO 
are synonyms because it's only the U.S. Uh, which has real uh, uh, military clout that can fight and that has uh, significant uh, nuclear arms. We see now how President Macron uh, says we are not going to use uh, nuclear arms if Russia is. So you can say that the French nuclear arms are really just uh, fig leaves uh, uh, for political convenience and not uh, a fighting uh, tool. And uh, Putin has then adopted, as I understand it, Lukashenko's terminology. His enemies are not only the US and NATO, but uh, it's uh, the European Union. And uh, Britain has turned out to be particularly militant uh, uh, on uh, Ukraine, because uh, it appears to me that uh, the British uh, Tory party was seeking some kind of uh, foreign policy justification for Brexit. And then the war in Ukraine suited them very well. So the Brits have uh, in many ways been leading the uh, military support of of the West uh, in Ukraine. And of course, Canada has always been militant um, on Ukraine because they have 1.8 million of Ukrainian diaspora in the country including now probably Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, now Minister of Finance, uh, Christian Freeland, who's uh, an adamant uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, supporter. I think that uh, Putin is reflecting the reality. It is a collective West that is standing against him. And of course, we shouldn't forget um, Australia and New Zealand, Japan and uh, South Korea, that have also joined in the alliance against uh, Russia uh, over uh, Ukraine. Finally, we can say that we can spell the West with capital letter once again. Well, that's an unintended consequence. A good one. It also seems like the idea itself has evolved quite, and it continues to evolve very rapidly. I mean, it's not really the West a place or even a political idea. It's a cultural critique you know that should the West, the collective West, should be prefaced by the, the degenerate, uh, you know, all the all the bad things that Putin or Xi Jinping have to say about our our way of life, you know, more more broadly, and it's gotten more vociferous as the war has gone on, and you know, not turned out the way that Putin would have liked. It again, it's become kind of a cultural battle that has found some resonance even in the West, the place. Yeah, I would like to turn that around, that uh, Putin has really made sure that uh, everybody now understands that Russia is an authoritarian kleptocracy and quite uh, dysfunctional in every regard, as a civilization or as a, as a, a state. And uh, then we look up on China and we see that there are very many similar uh, features uh, uh, between Russia and China. I read this um, Desmond Schramm's uh, excellent uh, book, Red Roulette, and it sounds exactly like in Russia. In order to make a fortune in uh, China, you need to have somebody in the red aristocracy who protects you, and you need to have a state company that provides the money, and you need to have uh, private executives uh, who uh, have uh, enough power so that they can run the company, otherwise the state will run it uh, into ground. This is not a viable, uh, viable model of uh, 
the development and the corruption uh, seems to get ever worse. Uh, the family of Xi Jinping is uh, due, uh, deeply implicated in it uh, since um, 2012. It uh, uh, was uh, revealed by a Bloomberg story that uh, deprived that uh, journalist of uh, visa to, uh, to, to China. So uh, I think that uh, we will increasingly look upon Xi Jinping as uh, a successor to Erich Honecker, an East German who drove that country uh, into the ground by emphasizing the party and the uh, secret police rather than uh, the, the economy, and then using the code word national security, which essentially is the security of the, the nomenclatura to, to pursue its um, robbery of the state. But in particular now, with Putin, he has taken a big step forward into deprivation by not only attempting a genocide on Ukraine, but you can say that his mobilization in Russia is showing that after having failed to pursue his genocide in Ukraine, he's attempting a genocide on young Russian men. And then you just wonder why doesn't anybody kick him out? Because that should be in, in the interest of everybody in Russia today. And of course, China has also its genocide in Xinjiang. So Putin and Xi Jinping really seem to be birds of the same kind. Sanders, you obviously have written over many decades about the the Russian economy, about the sort of structural changes that the Russian economy has undergone, particularly under 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 Putin's reign. And I think you describe in many different outlets very eloquently the sort of state-centered kleptocratic model of economic governance that has enabled a small circle of Putin's cronies, childhood friends friends from security services to get extraordinarily rich uh, at the expense of everybody else in a way that has also entrenched the power of of Putin and his inner circle. One must suspect that this model is under a lot of stress as a result of, of, of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, there has been an extraordinary degree of unity uh, among Western countries in imposing sanctions, in trying to improve standards of financial transparency, in seizing yachts and other assets from 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 Russian oligarchs, do you think those efforts have gone far enough? Should they go further? And do you expect those efforts on the part of the West to have a material effect on the stability of Putin's regime going forward? I mean, you know, is there a splintering of, of, of that reigning elite in the cards or not as a result of the fact that suddenly all of Putin's friends can no longer just do their shopping in London or send their kids to Eton or you know just enjoy the benefits of 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 of, of the West's economic openness. The, the, the short answers are first the sanctions have not gone far enough much more should be done. The second is that uh, I don't think even so that the West can really divide uh, the Russian elite. What we can do is that we can seriously damage the Russian elite and uh, the the Russian economy. But uh, what uh, has been done is that the the sanctions that are overt, open, it's altogether now about 
1,800 people who had been sanctioned, Russians. The working group of uh, Andrei Yermak and Mike McFall at Stanford that I participate in uh, have suggested 18,000 to say that only 10% of those who are really guilty they have been uh, sanctioned. So it should, uh, and on top of that, uh, the families. Much more should be done. Moreover, the sanctions vary from country to country. Why, for example, is Raman Abramovich not sanctioned in the US? He's one of the people closest to, uh, to Putin who has um, done very substantial uh, financial services uh, for uh, Putin. And this is well known, so it's a no, no problem uh, to prove it. Then the effect of the sanctions, it has been quite good with visas. People can hardly travel to the countries where we are sanctioned. There are exceptions, but they are minor. And uh, also the uh, freezing of yachts and real estate, uh, private jets, have been quite efficient. What has not been effective is the freezing of assets. Altogether, something like $30, $35 billion of assets have been frozen. Probably the people who have been sanctioned have assets abroad of about half a trillion of dollars. So say that 6% or so of all their assets have been frozen and they have not been confiscated. For example, one oligarch in Switzerland managed to get half of several billion dollars back because he transferred it to his wife in a way that was considered legal, so the money was no longer uh, sanctioned. So the financial sanctions are really ridiculous. And the reason is that uh, there's no transparency. Most of, uh, or half of uh, the sanctioned money is probably in the United States, and most of the rest in the United Kingdom. And these are the two countries that have millions of anonymous com- companies, and nobody really knows who owns what. Therefore, it's very difficult to go after the assets. It's easier with um, houses because you see who actually uh, uses uh, the house. About financial assets, uh, you don't see who goes into the bank account. That's uh, deeply secret. So the US, which adopted the Corporate uh, Transparency Act uh, one and a half years ago, must make sure that this gets some effect. So far, it has not been implemented. So therefore, the U.S. today is the favorite uh, offshore haven for uh, foreign oligarchs, including the Russian oligarchs. And you can also see that the uh, oligarchs have had their assets frozen are people who are relatively well known and open, such as um, Raman Abramovich, Andrei Milichenko, Alekteri Paska, Viktor Wechselberg, who uh, operated quite openly. We hardly see anything apart from minor real estate or the uh, true Putin cronies, Yuri Kavachuk, uh, Gennady Timchenko, the brothers uh, Arkady and um, Boris uh, uh, Rothenberg. So all of this shows that the financial sanctions are very ineffective. The big thing that should be done is to uh, confiscate the central bank res- uh, currency reserves that are being held in seven Western countries. That's a bit more than $300 billion. This money sh- and its cash, it belongs to the Russian state, and we know where the money is, and it's all liquid. This should be confiscated and used for 
Russian war reparations to Ukraine. That would be failed. You talked and made a lot of sense in terms of the limits of sanctions in the United States and the UK and to what use that money should be put, very obviously. What about the European Union? Um, to what extent are EU sanctions effective in, in the same sense of what you talked about? Is there significant Russian money that the EU is trying to not address or to hide? And then connected to that, a second question you recently wrote about the EU being very, very slow in financial aid directly to Ukraine that needs it now urgently. And so can you help us make sense of where you see the EU in these regards and what in your understanding holds the EU back? Is it just, you know, vetoes from Hungary or is there more to it or are they actually more effective than we think? On the first point, uh, the EU is more effective than you think. And the reason why the money is hidden in uh, Anglo-Saxon, uh, Anglo-American countries, it is because they have a lot of anonymous uh, companies. They accept it while the European, by and large, don't accept anonymous companies. There are exceptions in uh, Holland, in Luxembourg, Uh, but these are exceptions. You don't hide money in France or Italy. Uh, you might own a palace or so, but uh, you don't hide uh, uh, money. By and large, the Russians have had their real estate frozen in uh, Italy and, uh, and France. It's uh, really a difference in legislation. Anglo-American legislation traditionally has lost of trusts, which are anonymous or can be anonymous. In continental civil law, you don't have this. And most transparent is the Scandinavian law, which is really different from the civil law. So in the Nordic countries, it's pretty much impossible to hide any, any financial assets. You have to do it in a very complicated way in order to succeed. So therefore, traditionally, the offshore have been Anglo-British uh, uh, former territories or current uh, uh, territories. The, the places that stand out today are Dubai, which is the big black hole in the global finances, uh, uh, Cayman Islands, uh, which has $2.7 trillion of investment in U.S. Uh, securities, far more than any other country. For example, such as uh, small countries like Japan, China, and, uh, and the United Kingdom. This is all anonymous, and this is accepted. The source here is actually the U.S. Treasury that publishes these reports uh, each year, but we have no idea where the money ultimately uh, comes from. That's what may, they have to demand and should demand, according to this uh, uh, Corporate Transparency Act of January 2021. Europe simply doesn't get much of this money. Uh, Holland has some foundations, and the hedge funds are very fond of using uh, Luxembourg. So this is money that uh, is registered um, elsewhere. And then on the EU financing, happy that you bring this point up. Uh, so far, the European Union this year have only given $2.8 billion dollars to, uh, to Ukraine. That is essentially since uh, they started with it, 
half a billion dollars a month, while the US since um, July gives regularly one and a half billion dollars a month and is intent on continuing doing so for the rest of this year and tentatively also for next um, year. Now it seems that the EU is shaping up mm-hmm. and they have now uh, explained plans of actually dispersing $5 billion uh, during the uh, last three months of this year. And they intend to match the, the US uh, uh, for next year with $18 billion euro or or dollars. You know, it's a parity now, so it doesn't matter which we use right now. So it seems that the EU is about to catch up, but so far they have not done it. You know, Anders, the dichotomy between the character of the war and, I mean, not, this is not just true of the sanctions regime, but more broadly of the Western response to the war, the two of them seem to be in from different universes almost. The sanctions that you described are targeted at the Russian elites and the oligarchs and the corruption in Russia and the leadership and so on. But clearly the, the war, at least f- until lately uh, with the threat of a draft, has not affected the average great Russian very much. It's been sort of a television war. But now you see even some opposition to, it's mostly directed at the military leadership uh, for being too soft and uh, not effective. So in in some ways, it's like we're dealing with a Russia that is, you know, you know following one set of principles, a much more brutal set of, you know, almost philosophical outlook on humanity. And and our response has been, you know, eyedropper level of sanctions and two eyedropper worth of weapons uh, here and there. You know, we're sort of responding as though they were a normal Western nation and would respond to the same sort of incentives that we would respond to. If you can accept that, critique, how do you think the sanctions regime should be structured to really get at the political center uh, of Russia to, to divorce the leadership from the larger public, without which it can't really continue to sustain this aggression? And could that even be done without us like overhauling in a major way the, the way the financial system is structured? Well, I mean, our, our financial system is set up for peacetime, not for wartime. Yeah, yeah but uh, of course, uh, I completely agree with this. Uh, and the fundamental problem is that uh, sanctions is the third best option. Uh, the best uh, option is uh, if... Uh, Russia attacks a democratic, uh, peaceful country in a war of aggression. You stand up for the weak and defend it. So the natural thing would have been to send troops. And that was not a political option. What do you do then? Well, first you try with um, negotiations and sanctions. Uh, And these uh, uh, negotiations with Putin have 
clearly confused the Germans and the French. If they were not confused before, which they probably were, That's a very kind and uh, <laughs> left them in the background. So, is that a question? Or... No, <laughs> it's a point. And uh, uh, we are now seeing that. Uh, Germany and France are the language in any understanding in the European Union, while the leaders are the Baltic states, uh, uh, Poland and uh, Romania, and they have now been joined by the Nordics, Finland, Sweden and Denmark, and for that matter Norway and NATO are very much on the uh, on the same line, and of course uh, Britain also are now outside. So uh, Germany and France all of a sudden do not look like the leaders of Europe, but uh, as the laggards of Europe uh, with um, uh, Austria and Hungary hanging behind them, which is uh, not much when it comes to, uh, to, to foreign uh, policy. And I see, at least in Germany, there's a major rethinking of foreign policy, which is interestingly uh, led by the Green Party, which now has the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Anna Lena Baerbock, who I see is very much the person who reformulates the German foreign policy. So, and it's really the leading Liberal Party in Germany. In France, I think that Emmanuel Macron is able to turn in many directions as is necessary, so I'm not too worried that about that and all he's used to being photographed from every direction yeah but uh, french politics because of the presidential system is so uh, so centralized so the big thing we have seen now is that uh, countries that never delivered uh, arms uh, to countries in war like germany sweden finland have uh, delivered quite a lot of arms uh, to um, to, to Ukraine, and it has really changed uh, uh, the paradigm when it comes to arms deliveries and also to, uh, training of uh, military. Currently, 200 Ukrainian soldiers are being trained in France, and it's supposed to become 2,000. Uh, this is uh, this is important. The next we are waiting for uh, is really when will the West be drawn into the war in a more substantial way? I have uh, long argued for a no-fly uh, zone uh, that um, the, the West should simply do what they did in, in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, uh, prohibit uh, uh, Russia to fly over uh, uh, Ukraine. But that was considered too daring by the, uh, the White House uh, when they still wanted to talk to Putin, which they fortunately have abandoned uh, now. And uh, we, uh, also that uh, the Western uh, fleets, which means that primarily the U.S. Navy, should go into the Black uh, Sea and make sure uh, that uh, Ukrainian shipping can, can continue. But Russia had uh, blocked from uh, uh, early February until uh, August and to, uh, still to a considerable extent has blocked. This is completely permissible. And there's no reason for the West uh, to allow Russia to treat uh, the Black Sea as an internal uh, Russian uh, sea. So these are just two examples of what the West uh, should do additionally, apart from, of course, delivering uh, fighter planes uh, to Ukraine and uh, more of the battle tanks.
I, I promise to relinquish the microphone to my colleagues for the rest of the show, but you touched on something that's of an obsession for me in regard to during, I feel like I've seen this movie before in the 1990s when especially Joschka Fischer and the Green Party came forward um, as the voice of a, a transformed German foreign policy, which lasted not too long, really. Very, you know, Germany returned to arguably, uh, you know, doubling down on Ostpolitik and cozying up to the Russians. So I'm skeptical of a German transformation that's other than rhetorical, that has any lasting substance to it. Uh, but I would be interested in in your views and whether you're as bleak about the Germans as I. No, not at all. Uh, the point is that Joschka Fischer transformed the Green Party and that transformation has held. And the Green Party is now stronger than ever and it holds uh, uh, two important uh, posts uh, for foreign policy in the, 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 the government. And they have surpassed the Social Democrats in the opinion polls. The Social Democrats were traitors. Gerhard Schröder allowed himself to be bought by Putin. And he was the person who entirely instigated the Nord Stream uh, gas, uh, direct uh, gas uh, dependency of Germany on Russia. So there's really one person, and his two closest assistants were current um, uh, president uh, Frank Walter Steinmeier, who has been very Good quiet thing. recently, which I greatly appreciate. <laughs> and, much to be quiet about. And uh, yeah, indeed. And uh, Minister for Economy and Foreign Affairs. Uh, at various uh, times, uh, uh, Gabriel, who's fortunately now out of the politics, and uh, Sh- uh, Olaf Scholz uh, comes partly from this um, pot, but he's not uh, so committed to it. So what we see from the Social Democrats is a chaos of the poor, poor uh, thinking. And CDU, there we see that they have after Merkel changed their view. They always had two different groups in the party, where Merkel now afterwards has come out very strongly as the uh, pro-Putin, pro-gas uh, 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 faction saying, I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, while uh, If I were she, I would blame Schröder and said that I had to make compromises with uh, uh, Schröder's uh, ilk. Uh, but she hasn't done that. And I think that is uh, 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 quite bad uh, for, for her legacy. So uh, Merkel has really dropped uh, out uh, completely. I wonder if Julia, as a resident, you know, German expert, has has <laughs> any views on this. Anders has, um, without any exception, touched all the points I was hoping <laughs> he would touch. Um, definitely, I was like, and what about Angela Merkel? And then he came right out on that. <laughs> um, no, no disagreements from me. If I may, if I may change a little bit from Germany, which I, I guess I see 
it, it, the Zeitenwende is maybe still in the making. And I think um, rhetoric is way too important in Germany. And we'll see if there's something else beyond that. Um, but it will take time, as the Germans say. I, I want to change a little bit before we have to let you go, Anders, to, to Russia itself. We talked about the elites. We talked about the political system of support. But you also make some very important points, I, th I think most recently in the Washington Post about the, the Russian population. And I'm curious to hear you ask what after Putin, but I'm curious to ask the question back to you. I'm of the camp that is very skeptical, as I think you are partially from, from what I've read, when it comes to hoping, you know, a bit illusionary that um, after Putin, everything will be great. Uh, I'm of the view that Putin over the last more than one decade has built himself a little monster in the public opinion. And I see that every time someone talks about after Putin and whether sanctions are biting into political opinion among voters, I'm I recall or it rings in my ear something that I've heard so many times from friends and colleagues that have relatives in Russia at the beginning of the war, um, cut the relationship when Russians were saying, if you think that you're going to affect our support for Putin in any way, you are completely wrong. We are used to hunger and dire economic situations. We are now at a point better than we've ever been before in as long as we can remember, even in generations. And so nothing will change our support for Putin. And you make a call for continuing to reach out to the Russian population to the extent that we can to perhaps change that. And I wonder in your understanding, what does that take? And if you really think we can have an impact with the limited resources that we have to reach Russia um, in the months and maybe year to come. Yeah, first on uh, Germany, a month ago, I saw uh, Annalena Baerbock, the Minister of Foreign Affairs from the Green Party, in at a conference in Kiev. And she, uh, first of all, I thought it was brave of her to go to the uh, uh, lion's den and uh, defend her policy. But uh, she said repeatedly that we have uh, changed our policy 180 degrees and it takes some time to get it right. So, so bear with us, but we are working on it. That was her message, and I was uh, greatly impressed uh, uh, by that. And on Russia, Levada Center had long presented a view of the Russian population as consisting of approximately three equally large uh, groups. One third, or perhaps you would say less, that are uh, Western liberals, European liberals in their outlook. They are completely alienated and have no influence whatsoever. And then one third of Lumpen uh, who support Putin, the people who are rural, poorly educated and old. And then uh, one third, some people would say a bit more, who are in the middle, uh, are political. They don't support Putin, but they don't oppose Putin. They don't see any reason to express any political opinion because it only costs you. And we are now seeing from the newspapers and the other media uh, that a lot of these people who have been called up, they are getting furious. 
uh, I did not do anything against you. Why are you treated me, treating me like this? And so I think that this is a big destabilization. And I think that uh, if anything happens in Russia, we will say that uh, the mobilization was Putin's uh, biggest mistake. Thereby, I'm not predicting that the whole system will collapse now, even if I think that is the most uh, likely outcome, because Putin is not doing anything for anybody in Russia any longer. And uh, uh, we have long heard this uh, about Putin bringing uh, uh, welfare to Russia. Well, he during his first term, he uh, just accepted the reforms of uh, the Yeltsin Gaidar period in the 1990s. In his second term, he um, benefited from the high oil price. Since uh, 2009, the Russian economy has hardly grown. And one would have thought that uh, Russians would have been smart enough to realize that uh, Putin has brought uh, them more than one decade of, uh, of stagnation. But, but unfortunately, you report that is uh, far too often not the case. But now they see that the standard of lingering is um, falling. What uh, Russian middle classes have strongly appreciated is that they can uh, travel. Now they can't uh, any longer or only to a very li lim limited extent. So I think that those two things are uh, quite serious. And then you get the mobilization, which really comes down as a sledgehammer on the population. And therefore, I think that we should expect that something will happen. And uh, But, uh, of course, when you have a severe dictator with extraordinary repressive machinery, you never know how he will be uh, killed. You know, there are quite a few illusions on, uh, uh, was it Pavel I, how he was uh, murdered um, with uh, a box of... Uh, a snuff, uh, or possibly with uh, a scarf. It's uh, somewhat unclear, but murdered he was. So uh, this is the question. Will he be uh, uh, murdered with a box of snuff or with a scarf? This is a common Russian uh, discussion uh, uh, at present. But how we can influence, uh, I thought it was a very good example the other day. Two uh, or three Tajik soldiers killed uh, uh, 11 or 22 Russian soldiers in a base uh, uh, in Belgorod. And uh, this was reported on two telegram channels first. And then I read it in Commerzant and uh, uh, Russian business consulting. So all the standard uh, Russian media picked it up. And what did they do? Well, uh, the first report was that uh, 22 Russians uh, died. Now it was only 11. The first report was it was three Tajiks who had done it. Then it became only two uh, citizens of another CIS country, unclear which. It was first reported that two of the Tajiks were shot dead. And now uh, uh, that remained. But the third, according to the first reports, managed to, uh, to escape. That was not in the official uh, reports. It was... Uh, in the unofficial reports, it was stated that uh, it was a matter of religion. I would presume that it was really a matter of racism, but that disappeared altogether in the official report. So we can see that uh, the Telegram channels are so influential that the official uh, media can no longer ignore them. Instead, they try to uh, 
uh, uh, change uh, the message a bit and uh, <clears throat> make it into uh, half truth rather than the terrible truth that uh, that we saw uh, first. And um, most of the Russians look into the Telegram channels where you can find absolutely everything, including the truth. And uh, uh, therefore, I think that uh, Western media should fully focus on Telegram channels and get information out to Russians in Russian by the te uh, Telegram channels. There are lots of liberal Russians who are doing this uh, already. I don't understand this media world. Uh, very, very well, but this is uh, a really a, a good way of uh, influencing Russia. You touched on a bunch of things that we would have loved to talk about, including Russia claiming now terrorism and how racism fits <laughs> into all of this. But um, uh, but we hope we will have you join again soon so we can talk through more of this. Um, I'm planning to continue in my questioning tomorrow offline over lunch. <laughs> and I have questions about Russian assets to ask you. So I'll I'll do that and I'll then report back to our listeners. See you tomorrow. You know that you need to have a tie and a jacket at the Cosmos Club. I never leave my basement without a tie and jacket on. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. On that note, thank you so much, Anders Aslund, for, for joining. From me, Julia Zsozsa, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Dalibur Rohaj. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. The Eastern Front's newsletter is now live, and you can sign up for it um, through the link included in the show notes. On, you can also find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. You can now win some amazing Eastern Front um, coffee cups, coffee mugs, and um, tote bags if you engage with us on Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.